Hey, 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 welcome back, Pop Culture Quorum Deo. I'm Jeff Wright. I'm here with Jared Moore once again. The Lord has blessed me with favor. We're recording in person, Jared. It's good to see you, man. Good to see you too, buddy. How's life treating you? Going pretty well. Yeah. COVID's, uh, hopefully it's on the downtick, you know? Yeah, that'd be nice. That'd mm-hmm. be nice. Um, are you encouraged? Encouraged. Yeah. <laughs> how, how are your spirits? Ah, uh, doing okay. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> it's been a discouraging six months, you know? Yeah, yeah, I can hear that in your voice. And I'm, it's been weird. But I, my book's I coming out Monday, so that's, I'm excited about that. Yeah, Monday is the time we're recording. We have a special episode either lined up for our listeners or that listeners have already heard on the Pop Culture Parent. Mm-hmm. Is this your meal ticket to wealth and fame? I think so. Good. I think so. Will you still remember us little people? <laughs> Oh, I'm excited about it, man. I think it'll be helpful. That was a skillful dodge. That was a skillful dodge. I'll always uh, remember you because (laughs) you're you're always going to be bigger than me, buddy. The thorn in in your side. (laughs) Oh, man. But I I think it's going to be good and lasting, and hopefully we can put out more additions as pop culture changes. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I'm really looking forward to companion pieces. Yeah, I mean, I think I've heard I've heard rumors of material left on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. A companion website would be something I, as a reader, would be interested in. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we're here to talk about the new mutants. Um, let's just get into our normal routine, man. It's the first time we've had a chance to do this, so let's jump into. What you watching? What you watching? What you watching? I watched a documentary on HBO called "I'll Be Gone in the Dark." It's about the Golden State Killer, which um, I don't know if our listeners know this or not, but I have a real interest in true crime. Serial killers are an interest to me. I listen to a lot of podcasts about, yeah, true crime, serial killers. And he's been the great unknown monster for a long time. It was basically Zodiac, who we don't know know, who it is. Uh, Some people would say Jack the Ripper, although I think we've got a good theory on who Jack the Ripper is. And Golden State Killer would be the third tier. Hmm. So HBO has a documentary, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which is one of the things that that monster said to one of his victims. Basically, you scream, I'll kill you, and then you'll be dead, and I'll be gone in the dark. So they did a documentary on on the the killer who was identified through DNA uh, matching, I think, a year ago. Yeah, like public DNA websites that a family member of his submitted DNA, and then police officers used that to trace it back to him. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it made a ton of news and not just in the true crime community. And anyway, the documentary is low hanging fruit, ready to be made. Um, But I think the documentary got goofed up a little bit because Patton Oswalt, who is not an A-list celebrity, but C or B-level celebrity. A lot of people know him from King of Queens. His wife was a true crime blogger who started trying to write a, a book on the Golden State Killer and died in the course of doing that pretty shortly before Golden State Killer was identified. And so what HBO tried to do was make the documentary about her in her search for the Golden State Killer. But the problem is nothing she really did in her search is all that consequential. And Michelle is interesting enough to kind of be maybe a an addition to an episode in the documentary, but her life just isn't compelling enough to like, for me as a listener, or excuse me, for me as a watcher of the documentary, to be like, I'm I'm grateful this is included. I may have watched a documentary on her life. Mm-hmm. I, you know, maybe. Yeah. But I really wanted to watch a documentary on the Golden State Killer. 
And so, I, you know, no criticism of that choice. I understand why Patton wants to honor his wife. I understand why HBO would think that's a human interest story. But for my purposes, I just found myself being like, I, I can watch the Michelle McNamara version of this some other time. I just want to know about the Golden State Killer. Mm-hmm. So the documentary was good when it was focused on the crime. I thought it got a little tiresome when we shifted to Michelle McNamara. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's that been something I've been watching. Would you recommend it? I would if you think you have a palate for specifically what I just said. Like if for me, I don't regret watching it. But it's because I'm so interested in the true crime side of it. If that weren't enough to compel me, like if if I heard this, like ah, I'm sort of interested, I probably would just read the book that the Golden State Killer's brother-in-law is about to release, and whatever documentary comes out of that, maybe watch that. I rewatched uh, Tombstone the other day. Yeah, man, one of my—I mean, I know it's got a lot of cuss words in it, but that's one of my all-time favorites. It was awesome. It is even better this time around. Like the older I get, the better it gets. <laughs> yeah, I have. There's only a couple movies that fit this criteria for me, but I have bought Tombstone on VHS, DVD, and Blu-ray. <laughs> I've done that with Star Wars also, and I think those are probably the only two that I've done that with. Wow, I love that movie. Are you ever going to watch it with your son? Your oh, sons, yeah. rather. Oh yeah, if he could. My oldest probably can't handle it quite yet, but another year or two, yeah, he'll be able to watch it. I'm in the same boat. My son, my oldest son is just a little bit older than, excuse me, younger than yours. But I'm like chomping at the bit to watch it with both, both of my boys. Uh, I I really love that movie. So I'm not surprised it holds up. Yeah, we, we've uh, made decisions. It's weird. The younger ones get to, they get to watch, because they're old, the older kids get to watch some stuff. And so the younger ones are getting to watch stuff earlier than their older siblings. And I don't think that that's necessarily ideal, but we just, we tell them, don't say these words, and they don't, you know. Um, and uh, but Caden, one of the one of the kids at school, was telling him, you know, I can't watch Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, kid his age, you know. And Caden was like, Yeah, well, I couldn't watch it either until you know just the past couple months. Dad let me watch it, and Jude gets to watch it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jude's like five, and the guy's like, What? Yeah, like he couldn't believe he, he couldn't believe it because he's he was the youngest. Out of his group, and so, so anyway, it was just, uh, it was just funny. Yeah, I think we feel that same pool because our kids are old enough. Some of my kids are old enough to want to watch it, uh, but we don't want to exclude the younger sibling, you know. And she's clearly game, you know. She wants to watch it, so it, it's a tough needle to thread to kind of protect her developmental innocence. Yeah, uh, but also kind of match my kids' interest level. Yeah. Uh, kind of the perfect. Version of that was Ford versus Ferrari. Mm-hmm. You know, my older son, super into it. My younger son was super interested in it, but it didn't scandalize my daughters. You know what I mean? Yeah. And not my younger daughter. And so I know that I know that needle you're trying to thread pretty well. It's just language and language is not, it's just not in our household. We don't want our kids saying it, but it's not a big deal. Like it's not, you know, we, we don't view it. As, it's not a big deal as much as even the violence is worse, is more of a big deal for their age, in my opinion. And uh, the sexuality, and we don't want any crude sexual stuff at all um, if we can help it. Um, but Ford versus Ferrari doesn't have it in it. Um, uh, Tombstone has a little innuendo, but um, unless you're aware of what the words mean, you may not even pick it up. Uh, but it, the violence in that is what I'm worried. Like you know, it's pretty pretty hardcore violence, like bullets in the head, and you know. But if you've never seen Tombstone, like it might be the greatest western of all time. <laughs> 
Yeah, I know people who are a big fan of the genre are probably ready to fight us over that. I like Westerns, actually. I've probably mentioned it here. But that was really the one movie that my dad would watch with me. Mm-hmm. And it's just given me a lifelong love for Westerns. But, man, I, Tombstone is number one in my heart. Uh, we have a similar priority to what you're describing there. You know, you say foul language isn't a big deal. I think you probably mean that the same way I would, where it's easier to just tell my kid, don't use that word. And my kids are largely, at this stage anyway, ready to be obedient. And so like, yeah, okay, we just don't use that word. Cool. Um, now, someday as teenagers, they will want to maybe make different choices from sinful inclinations, but they're going to hear the words somewhere. I don't really feel like I'm like loading them up because I think they will, they will make that way. they make their way to those words, even if I bubbled them off. So it's easy for me to say those are just not words our family uses. They're not part of our family's character. Mm-hmm. And they're glad to agree. Yeah, it's more, it's more, I'm more concerned about their, you know, my oldest son being unloving to his younger siblings than I am him saying a bad word, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so we would permit, you permit Disney movies where there is, um, you know, an older person or an older sibling or someone being mean to somebody else in an unloving, you know what I'm saying? Like we're, you're allowing them to watch other things that, but just because it doesn't have cuss words you think it's okay but there's there's contrary worldviews and and temptations in in all media and so uh but yeah the the cuss words thing we're not we're not as much as much uh, concerned about but we don't use that language at all and, and they would get wore out if they said it you know they know better than that well let me ask you one other question on what you're watching are you watching any of the NBA and do you think you'll watch the NFL in the fall? I think I'll watch the NFL, but the NBA, it's been, it's just been strange. I don't know what it is about it that's different. Uh, Maybe the perpetual social justice messaging might be the thing. Yeah, I have steer clear to, I'm the least involved in sports that I've ever been in my life. Me too, man. And it's, and I can survive without it. And I think they're going to be in trouble if folks realize that they don't need sports. Yeah. I mean, I'm having something very similar. Listeners to this podcast may remember that we, we did like 10 hours on the Jordan documentary. Yeah. I have never loved a particular expression of a sport in my life the way I love the NBA. And I really didn't think that the social justice messaging would really phase me because I watch it on DVR. I can skip. And so I have. But there's something about the grind of it. And then like if you get on ESPN or Twitter and you get it again, I mean, this is a worldview I disagree with. I think it is doing real damage to not just our culture, but people's lives. I certainly want every human being to receive justice. I want every human being to be treated as an image bearer with the full dignity that entails. I don't think that's largely the project of organized Black Lives Matter as a national institution. And so when I'm just constantly, every time I hear something from the NBA, it's attached to that. Mm And in a way that I did not expect, my affections have been ground down. Mm-hmm. I find myself, I mean, like the basketball in the bubble is good in some ways. Guys are scoring and it's fun to watch. You know, if you like this style of basketball, the three and running gun kind of thing, it's good basketball. They shoot better in the bubble because there's not crowd distraction behind them and whatnot. Um, so like Jamal Murray scored 50 points, I think, in three straight games. Mm-hmm. Normally, I, that would be appointment viewing for me. I would like block out time in the afternoon or the evening when my kids weren't around. I'm like, I'm going to watch this game. But every time I go to, I really just come to like, meh, and I go do something else. Yeah. Uh, 
you're where I'm at. Yeah, you're wearing a Tennessee Titans hat. Our listeners can't know that, but I can. And the quarterback released a video with the team saying America was built on racist principles. It's the same nonsense coming out of the 1619 project that, I mean, you know, they, they've they been pretty honest. Like, we're not really doing history. We're pushing a cultural mythology. Mm. And so Tannehill's up with all the Titans that I normally root for saying this stuff. And I, I'm really just left being like, I really, I really don't know if my fandom is going to survive. And yeah. I'm, I'm kind of holding out hope for college football. Yeah, they're they're it's gonna get in college football too. Yeah, sure. But I don't know, man. I I hope it does. I hope I can see past all that uh, and just watch the games and stop when I or turn it down. Or I just don't care. I don't. I don't know why these folks. I guess they're wanting to use their platform for good is the way they view it. But it's negative. It's going to negatively impact their jobs. You know. Yeah. It negatively impact their because people are not. They're not there to watch you, to listen to you. you know, pontificate. Pontificate, share. You know, you're you're primarily an athlete. They're there to watch you be an athlete, not your political commentary, you know? Yeah, and, and maybe they would seek it out. If they were, if, if you're the person who thinks that LeBron James's athletic acumen somehow gives him unique political insights, mm-hmm. they might seek that out, right? There might be fans who want to hear more. Yeah. But for those of us who don't look to get those ideas, from athletes or actors, it it just feels exhausting. It's it's exhausting in part because I mean honestly, you I question how much it's genuine and how much it's just whatever. Oh, the culture is going this way. We have to go this way so that we're not attacked by the culture. Because it's not like because you got like Ben Watson um, who is uh, against abortion, staunchly against abortion on Twitter and stuff. I don't know that he's ever said it in an interview after a football game. Right. Um, which would be okay if he did. I, would, I don't think we would, would say that, like, just dribble. Right, right. But I also, like, I need, since this isn't primarily what I'm coming for, I just, I don't need it 24-7 every time I encounter right. your sport. What, what I'm saying is, is that if Ben Watson, Benjamin Watson, wanted to, every time they interviewed him, the first thing he mentioned was abortion, or he put, no, you know, abolition, abortion, abolish abortion or something on his jersey. I mean, it's just, you know... Again, I want to abolish abortion, but that's not the reason why people are tuning in. And not only that, do you remember how how much Tebow got yeah. criticized yeah. for constantly talking about Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> and and oh, I mean, come on, man. Yeah. I mean, people. And what it was? What, what was the argument? Oh, we don't want to be evangelized, type thing. We don't want to hear that every time. Well, this is a type of evangelism, you know. For sure, <laughs> they're trying to get it, and people are not tuning into football and the NBA games so that they can be evangelized by whatever the ideology is. Uh, and it's not the ideology of the players, in my opinion. It's primarily the ideology of the culture and then the player. They're using the players. And yes, I'm not saying these guys don't believe it, but I'm saying where were they were two years ago? Where yeah, were it's they? Not, it doesn't appear to be thoughtful consideration. It's slogans. Yeah. And you've even seen this like stuff that Steven Jackson um, there was a there was a football wide receiver in the NFL who did something similar, but they they were basically tweeting anti semitism. Yeah, and you start to see like big name NBA players liking the tweets and the posts, and you start thinking like, well, it's actually not about justice; it's about your tribe over and against others, which sounds a lot like racism. Yeah, and so there's a there's a there's an intrinsic. I, I don't accuse these guys of being racist. I think they may be guilty of hypocrisy. But it's just not careful consideration. And so if I'm not coming to hear your carefully considered position, 
I really do just want to watch you play basketball at the highest level. And it's okay if you tell me some stuff you think is important every now and then. Um, I'm, I'm happy to hear that just in loving my neighbor and listening well. But I'm also going to turn the TV if that's all you ever do, even while the basketballs are being bounced. Yeah. And you're right. It's going to cost them money. There's all these think pieces coming out where, you know, why are ratings down for the NBA? It's something else that drives me nuts. Like they did the same thing with the NFL when Kaepernick started kneeling. Well, why? What's going on? Like, why is nobody, why are nobody, why is nobody watching anymore? What, what's happening? Well, could it be that <laughs> y'all started kneeling during the national anthem? And people I mean, didn't want, yeah, people did not want to watch that. Yeah. Well, it seems weird to kind of end what you're watching on the note that we're not really watching sports in a way that we're surprised by. Anything else you've laid eyes on? No, that's it right now, man. Yeah, um, I'm with you. Um, A lot of my viewing habits have changed. I'm watching Avatar, The Last Airbender, the cartoon with my kids. We're having a good time doing that. Oh, good. Yeah, it's good. It's Hmm. good. And some of my friends who have actually been on the podcast, Nick Duncan, uh, was on a roundtable with The Rise of Skywalker. Uh, Joe Davis talked about Star Wars as the cultural epic, which is a great episode. Um, They're the ones who recommended it to me. They told me that. I definitely got to watch it with my kids. It's a great story. And they said there's some like some implications towards the end of the sequel season that I have to be aware of that my kids probably won't be. You know, like, my kids won't pick up on it. But <laughs> anyway, it's a good story. It's charming. So I'm enjoying that. But we'll put a bow on. What you watching? What you watching? What you watching? And move into. So sorry to interrupt. Hey, Jared, you broke the internet the other day. I did? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Twitter literally caught on fire and burned my <laughs> phone because of this deeply uncompassionate thing you said about suicide. Yeah, that's true. I, I said I said the default position of the church needs to be that suicide, um, that every, every person who commits suicide is morally culpable for it, and they're morally culpable to fight it, to fight those desires. That that should be the default position of the church. Which, by the way, that has been the default position of the church for almost 2,000 years. <laughs> it's a violation of the Sixth Commandment. You shall not murder. No murder. That's what the Hebrew literally says. No murder. And um, <clears throat> I was surprised by the response. Um, you know, I, I think I think it's this empathy train. You know, folks want to be empathetic. And so they the first... I think what folks believe is that they think that the default position of the church should be if someone commits suicide, it's mental illness. That should be the default position of the church. But I, I don't think you can argue that biblically. And I don't, I don't think you can argue that medically. Um, you know, if someone kills someone else, the first assumption is not mental illness. It's the, it's the final, the last assumption. And it has to be fought for very hard in yes. a court of law. Yes, big time. Before, I mean, how many people have actually been able to prove insanity or temporary insanity? It's not a big list. And, um, you know, we, we have to get back to where we're encouraging moral culpability. Um, and my, my concern is I, I want to help prevent suicide, right? To um, And the original guy I was talking with, what happened was he, he had said that gay teen suicide was the fault of the church. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. People who are unloving, Christians who are unloving, are responsible for being unloving. And people who commit suicide are responsible for committing suicide. Like, look, you know, I'm responsible if I'm unloving and mean or ungodly towards someone who's in homosexual sin. 
but the the person who actually takes their life is equally culpable for taking their life and and uh, that's what I said well he he retweeted it and everybody and their brother I mean you know, I've been in ministry 20 years and people were calling for my resignation over one tweet. You know, it's just, it's amazing cancel culture. You know, oh, I had a pretty good run, you know, 20, yeah. 20 years of faithful ministry, but one tweet kicked Agreeing out. Agreeing with the church for a couple millennia. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. It was, it was, it was really surprising. Um, we have to do a lot of teaching. I mean, I had like Susan Condone, yeah. Condone. She's at Mercer. But she said that suicide is death due to illness. And I, 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 if you tell people who, who battle suicidal thoughts that, I don't see how that's going to prevent suicide. I think it's going to encourage it. I think we have to encourage moral culpability. And then on the flip side of that, people are, all, people are always chiming in and say, what about mental illness? What about mental illness? I'm not a medical doctor. Why are you asking me about mental illness? Well, and you would affirm that there is such a thing as oh, mental yeah, illness. Yeah, but I'm, I'm the saying— default starting point is that people have moral agency, yes. which is the assumption of the crowd that came for you. Yes. They assumed you had moral agency yes. and had done something immoral yes. in your statement. They did not assume that you were mentally ill and that that right. had led you to this conclusion. Right. They assume that you are morally responsible for your public action. Oh, yeah. And they assume rightly that a sexual abuser is morally responsible Absolutely. for their choices. Uh, we know that there is documentable, it, it, you know, if you're going to follow the mental illness metric, those who are sexual predators are diagnosed as mentally ill. Mm-hmm. They're also morally culpable. Right. Paraphilic desires. I mean, go read the DSM. Right. Know? Right. And the legal system treats them that way justly. Mm-hmm. Yes, they may be in need of treatment, but they're also by and large, adjudicated to be morally culpable for their choices. Right. And so there's a there's sort of this hypocrisy that empathy cultivates in people. And and for me, as someone watching it from the outside. As someone watching it from the outside, pastorally, I want people to maintain their moral agency. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Blaise Pascal wrote in his Pensies that everyone chooses what they think is most desirable. Mm-hmm. And he specifically says, even the man who hangs himself believes he's gaining pleasure, pleasant circumstances. Uh, I shouldn't say pleasant, preferable, pre- you know, circumstances. Relief or whatever he's looking for. Right. Yeah. And what that implies is rational choice. Mm-hmm. moral agency cognitive ability he could have chosen otherwise and so if you pushing me pushing people to say i don't i don't get to throw away my moral agency here and just let myself drift on victimhood into self murder mm-hmm. i mean if we take that away we take away a really good resource mm-hmm. to oppose right suicide they will never get out of it that's the thing like if you if you say they're only victims, they're not morally culpable, they're no responsibility to respond negatively to those desires, you're you're taking away their ability to fight and potentially get out of it. I mean, do you know how many people have had suicidal thoughts at one time and don't anymore? Like, imagine telling those people. I mean, I can name people in my own life. Yeah. I mean, all of us could. Yeah. All of us could. And yet, how did they get out of that? Um, it's not by saying, I have no choices in the matter, and I'm just going to accept this. This is my lot in life. I'm not responsible for it. I'm a perpetual victim. Um, and so 
we 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 have got to encourage folks to fight, and even people who are mentally ill. And in, in twenty years of ministry, uh, I've counseled people with PTSD, um, schizophrenic, brain damage, Alzheimer's, dementia. You name it. I have counseled people, and many of them were under the care of a medical doctor. But there's still spiritual realities. And there's not just this fine, let's slice it, oh, all of this is mental, there's no moral culpability. If if many of these people who are saying they're mentally ill concerning suicidal desires, suicide ideology, they or ideation, they if they had mur- if murdered somebody, the court would convict them justly. And yet you're you're telling me, or these people are telling me that God won't convict them for you know what I'm saying? Like they could have chosen otherwise and he's not going to hold them accountable. Um, now, we, we both believe that God is gracious, right? And a Christian is a Christian eternally. Um, so, yes, Christians, it is possible to commit suicide. Um, and, and find yourself in the new kingdom. Yes. You know, and, yes. Uh, and enjoy Christ forever. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. But my responsibility as a pastor is not to make medical diagnosis. I am to preach the word. And if the command is no murder, it means no human being unjustly taken from this world. And that includes self-murder. And so if I'm going to preach the word, I've got to preach the word to everyone. And, you know, I I don't, the people who have to defend themselves are not those who preach the Bible, but those who are saying, no, this is an exception to the command. Yeah. The, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to keep coming back to moral agency. Yeah. And even, um, there's just no hope apart from someone maintaining moral agency. Mm-hmm. What do we hope for people who are experiencing suicidal thoughts to do? We hope for them to come tell someone. Mm-hmm. That requires moral agency and rational choice. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not a pastor who thinks I can punt counseling. I do a lot of counseling. Mm-hmm. I'm also not a pastor who thinks the sum total falls on me. Right. So I will refer to a medical professional Amen. Uh, when that time comes. But even, you know, you're saying I'm not a medical professional. It's true. I'm not a medical professional, but I am a pastor. Yeah. And I'm on the front lines of people who are hurting. I'm I'm very self-consciously aware that, yeah, there are times you need to involve medical professionals. But God also called me to speak truth into people's lives. And I'm going to do both things. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely not going to say, well, you're a victim. And I love you and do what you think is best. I'm going to say, you know, there's victim circumstances. I'm going to say, yeah, you've been victimized. You need help. Mm -hmm. But I mean it in the way that I would tie up a young tree that is in danger of being blown over by the wind. Mm -hmm. I want to give them resources to grow into health. Yeah. And that may be a medical professional and a recommendation. Absolutely. And there's certain legal requirements even on this front that Mm -hmm. I'm going to honor. They're good. Sure. But I'm not going to just punt to the idea that pastors have nothing to say to people who are thinking about suicide either. Some of the criticisms for you, I just, they just boggled my mind. The, The one that I just had the most cynical laugh over was the person who told you that people are leaving the church because of you. And I thought people are leaving the church because Jared won't let them kill themselves. And I, it it was such a ridiculous criticism. I really had a hard time getting my head around it. I thought it might be satire. Yeah. That whole, most of the comments seem like satire. Like I did not know that there are Christians out there who believe this stuff. Like, it, it makes me fear for my children and the children in my church, the teenagers who Google this stuff. And there are Christians out there telling them that, no, if you want to, if you want to take your life, it's death due to illness. Yeah. Like you, you do not tell people that you do not, unless you want them to literally go take their lives. I, I just, you want to 
if you, unless you want to quiet their conscience, which is yes. rebelling against the choice they're considering. Yes. The reason why they haven't killed themselves is because they feel guilty. I mean, why? Why otherwise? Like it. And people were talking about heaping shame, and it, and it's it's what I see with Revoice. It's what I see with most of the movements today, and it's all critical theory um, where. People are arguing. They're trying to eliminate moral responsibility for one's actions. And the way they're doing that is by telling people you're not responsible. Everybody else is. It's everybody else's fault that you feel this way. And and so they go out and they condemn everyone else. But uh, the problem is, is that the reason why people the reason why people are battling, particularly with desires that are contrary to God, it's not because of everybody else. Now, everybody else may be morally culpable for the sin against you. Right. Um, but the reason why we feel bad is ultimately our sin and rebellion against God. Any desire that's contrary to God in us is sin. You know, we're in moral rebellion against God. And so instead of me telling you, well, you're not really in moral rebellion. This is purely medical. This is purely mental. It's not your fault. Um, I want to say Jesus died for you and let Christ take be the one who takes away your culpability instead of people, instead of me trying to remove your culpability or a medical doctor trying to remove your culpability, let Christ be morally culpable for your sin, right? You trust in him. That's The answer is grace. The answer to contrary to what everybody else is saying, they're saying that you're saved by being a victim. You're saved by you, you're not morally culpable. You, you're not responsible. Therefore, you're not held accountable for your sinful desires. And I'm saying, no, you're held accountable for every single one of them. That has been the Protestant position ever since the 1500s. And even before that, even Rome argued that in the 1500s. And so, look, I, I think that only God's grace should remove it, remove our guilt, um, not some medical doctor telling me I'm not guilty. So we absolutely want to be compassionate towards mm-hmm. people who are experiencing those thoughts. We would absolutely want to say there may be a medical need here that is going to be something we have to kind of hand this person on to, but then also continue caring for them as a pastor while they're going through it. Um, We have a responsibility to love them well. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we do is speak the truth as we speak the truth in love. Right. right? Oh, yeah. And I I walk through, you know, multiple counseling sessions, checking on people, calling them praying for them, you know, basically walking them through what turning from these desires looks like. And, and, um, and you know, something about empathy. If someone is lying to you or telling you something contrary to the Word of God, if somebody's telling you you're not responsible and God says you are, that is not love. That's not empathy. That's hate. That's, the, that's evil. It's the devil whispering, whispering something contrary to God. Oh, you're you're not responsible. It's okay. You're, and, uh, you know, and so it's not just people, people have a tendency to kind of frame this as, oh, I'm, I'm super empathetic and you're, you're hateful. You're being mean. When the truth is, if, if I'm telling lies with a smile on my face and this person's telling truth, even though it may be, it may come across as hurtful. If the truth is what's hurting, then let the truth hurt because this person will actually cause people to go to hell. The person who's empathetic telling lies. Yeah. Telling people what they want to hear. Pleasing lies. Ears. Yeah. And um, so I I want to I want to help people. I want to love on people. But th- this notion that the way that you help people is by removing moral responsibility, 
all you're doing is if they if they are a victim, all you're doing is seeing to it that they will always be a victim defined by their victimhood. Yes. Yeah. I mean, really, that's the thing. We we as Christians believe there is a future for those who are trusting in Christ. Yeah. And that really the thing we want to see people do is be defined by Christ, his image given to them in creation, mm-hmm. his spirit given to them in regeneration, rather than the wrongs, the real wrongs that are often done to people that they have to carry uh, the weight of, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I want the person who's been legitimately victimized mm-hmm. to be able to say, I have found healing and freedom in Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and that who I am in Christ is more true than the, the evil that was done to me. Mm-hmm. Again, there may be a listener here whose hair is on fire, and I I guess I would wrap up this part of the conversation, Jerry, by giving a thought experiment. It seems like one of the few moral common spaces we have anymore is that the Nazis of Germany were evil and that Jeffrey Epstein was evil. And so, you know, some of this stuff, I guess, is never going to be hashed out in a court of law. But sort of the common assumption, and we'll use it as a hypothetical, is that Jeffrey Epstein was a well-connected, powerful human trafficker and pedophile. And he went to jail and he died in jail under mysterious circumstances. We're told he committed suicide. I have my conclusions about that idea, but let's use it as a hypothetical. If Jeffrey Epstein killed himself in prison, did he die as a victim of mental illness? I wasn't. I haven't heard anyone make that question or offer that question. Everyone was saying, hey, man, glad he's gone. Yeah. He got justice. And and so that's not what we're saying. Right. But... What was entirely absent from the narrative is this poor victim right. who has died of mental illness. And yet a Susan Condon wants us to take that as the motif. Mm-hmm. Now, the exception doesn't you know, disprove the rule. I right. get that. But it does appear to me that we have real cultural resources, not just in the faith. I think the faith is chock full of these things, but real cultural resources to see through pretty quickly. The idea that suicide should be assumed to be an act of victimhood and mental illness mm-hmm. with the most high profile suicide we've seen in decades. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's a good point, man. A, a good, a helpful resource I think is uh, on this whole discussion is Mez McConnell, who uh leader of 20 schemes, who was uh, horrendously abused by his stepmother growing up. And uh, he was told as a, as a child, as a teenager by all of his counselors that he was really a good person I'm just a a victim of circumstances growing up. And he said, I knew that I wasn't a good person. He got converted by reading Romans. You read Romans 3. Good grief. You talk about opening your eyes that you are morally culpable before God for your desires. And he repented and believed in Christ. And I I mean, I I think that everyone knows that they're morally culpable. Like even, even when you are severely harmed, the desires that are contrary to God, even in those moments, um, it's sinful because it's contrary to God, not not the reason why. Like Peter goes out of his way to talk about Jesus when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Like he and, and to sh- hold him up as an example of how we're to respond. And I mean, Peter's writing children of the dispersion that because of this heinous persecution coming down upon the church, where the government's going to drag them away and kill them and murder their families. You know, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's amazing. And yet here he's telling them when Christ was reviled, he didn't revile in return, you know? Um, and so listen, I want to encourage you. I, I, I'm not saying don't go see doctors. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just, in fact, we would say, please do. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, almost any avenue, almost any avenue to keep you from taking your life. I mean, I would be in favor of, you know, um, anything that's not sinful. Um, but 
man, I, I want to plead with people and we want to protect people. Um, but I, I think that what Susan Condone is, is arguing is actually evil. It is detrimental to people. It will destroy the church. And I, folks, the, these people, again, I think are coming for our children. Imagine telling a teenager who has suicidal desires that they're not responsible if they kill themselves. I mean, I would be fired up as a parent to have someone argue that. I mean, they, most of these people, they have jobs. They're driving cars. They're doing all these literally functioning in all these morally culpable ways all across society. And yet for the one of the most heinous acts you could do in taking someone's life, a human being, an image bearer's life, and they're not more, if, if they're not morally culpable for that, they ain't morally culpable for anything. You can't arbitrarily say, and, and I was pushing back in some of these on Twitter and was telling them, you know, um, if they're not responsible for this sin, how can they be responsible for it? What sin are they responsible for? And people were replying back, well, none of us are saying they're not, they're sinless. Well, tell me what sins they're guilty of. You know, I mean, if you wanting to end your own life. And how would God relate to that? Yeah. That's the, that's the central question. Yeah. Um, but it, mental illness, though, like if you're mentally ill enough that these suicidal thoughts are not your responsibility, that same brain is the one that is producing every single thought that you have. And so if you're not morally culpable for the ones that say end your life, are you more morally culpable for any of it? I mean, again, think Epstein. Yeah, how can you be? Yeah. How can you? And again, that's a good point. Like with pedophilia, nobody's saying, well, or any crime. People are not saying, hmm, let's check their mental mental health before before we sentence. Or, know? I mean, I, th- I think there probably are some people who are still at least assuming that pedophilia is a product of mental illness. But are they then concluding that the acts that come from that mentality are not morally culpable acts. Right. And that's where the thing falls down. Mm -hmm. You're morally culpable for acting on morally wicked desires, Mm -hmm. wherever they come from. And so I, I, you know, the easy contrast is if someone has significant brain damage and they're, I mean, so I'm I'm going to the most objective version. I think mental illness can exist apart from brain damage. I'm just trying to go to the, the end. Someone is, the control centers of their brain are damaged. The personality centers are, you know, damaged. The the part that regulates temper is damaged. And they go out and do something wicked. I think the Lord knows how to account for those things. Absolutely. He's a just judge. He will do all things well. I don't think that means that I should take off the table that he will also hold morally accountable those who make the choice to hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's part of what we say as the church to a person Considering this, you are creating the image of God and you're responsible to him mm-hmm. for what you do with this life he gave you. Mm-hmm. Choose carefully. Let us help you. Yeah. yeah. Just just because they've forgotten their value doesn't mean God has. It doesn't mean that we have. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like we uh, we plead with folks and encourage them and hold their hand through the process of repentance of rejecting these desires. And there have been many people who have been brought out of it. That's the thing. What about all these folks who have been brought out of it? Um, and many of them with no medication whatsoever. You know, we have a good friend who said that talking to an old pastor while he was thinking about hurting himself and become obsessed with the idea, uh, the pastor told him, all I hear you talking about is you. Yep. Do you have responsibility to anyone other than you? And this man did. And he said that was the turning point, Mm -hmm. that I have a moral obligation to take care of these people who depend upon me. And praise be to God for an old pastor to confront selfishness Amen. rather than hide behind, oh, you must be a victim of mental illness. Amen. And let me let me just say this one thing. Folks, All many of you folks who are talking about therapy, 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 
you realize that literally the suicide rate is about as high as it's ever been in America. And we have more therapy and more people going to therapy than we've probably ever had. And yet, how do you explain the suicide rates? How do you... Look, it's not working. (laughs) I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, oh, we need more therapy, more therapy, more therapy. Perhaps the worldview that is being pushed, not to mention, Jeff, if you have mental illness, let me ask you a question. If your brain is mentally ill, how can you possibly, how will going to therapy possibly, how do you have enough mental health left to fix the mental illness that's in your brain? Like the logic behind this stuff, they're saying mental mental illness, removing moral culpability, but yet they say go to therapy so that I can talk to you so you can fix yourself. Like moral agencies required. Yeah, moral agencies required to fix what I supposedly don't have moral agency to fix. Like it's just the logic behind this stuff. You've literally found the very problem with optimistic humanism. When people look at human society and say humans have the resources to fix fix what's wrong with humans. It's such an obvious delusion. Yeah. You you don't use the broken thing to fix what's broken. Mm-hmm. You repair it from outside of itself. Absolutely. And it, it's just these, the, all I'm saying is, is that this emphasis on to a licensed professional, recommend to a licensed, all this stuff. Like, um, look, we recommend to medical doctors all the time. I do. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you do, too. And um but that doesn't mean there still aren't spiritual components that we can help with. And, you know, and our, a pastor will be judged for if he does yes. not maintain a pastoral care for that person. Absolutely. I don't hand them off to the mental care, mental health care institution right. and say, hey, y'all got it now, guys. I'm good. I'm still their pastor. Yeah. And I still need to be a check on what could be abuse taking place in that arena. Yeah. Um, so this this simplistic approach of you're a bad guy for saying suicide's bad. You're a bad guy for saying Anything other than medical professionals tell us what to do. It breaks down on even a minute's worth of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. But it's a delusion that has at least found itself in your Twitter profile. Absolutely. It, yeah, bless my heart. All those people calling for my um, execution <laughs> from the ministry, or at least excommunication from the ministry. And I, f- I found their empathy so loving yeah. that I made a meme from Scarface. <laughs> um, say hello to my little empathy. Yeah, yeah. If only they'd known how mentally ill you are, Jared Moore. For real. That's the thing. Like, if you really believe in mental illness, you know. I mean, we, I mean, we believe in it. You're saying if you if you see it as a cause that removes moral agency. Well, I'm saying I, I believe in it. I'm saying if they really believe in it, why would they come and treat me like... Oh, sure. Like someone, like, why are they Despise not? Despise you? Why are they not handling me with these empathy gloves that like they Like they handle? might push you through this criticism into. If I was on a cliff, I think that they might come push me off. <laughs> <laughs> or if you were struggling with self identity and, and self confidence and, and whatnot, that having a Twitter mob telling you, you you're not worthy of maintaining your role in a, vacation, a vocation you've served in for a long time, that might not push you towards good things. Yeah, it's just crazy, man, the hypocrisy that's all on display on Twitter. I don't believe these people are really empathetic. It's selective empathy, which means it's uh, selfish, self-righteous. You know, Everybody deserves empathy except the one they disagree with. Mm. That's not empathy. Jesus was empathetic towards those who agreed with him, those who disagree. I mean, it's not biblical empathy, you know? Yep. Anyway. So we'll put a bow on this section of... So sorry to interrupt. But the conversation about suicide is actually a pretty good 
segue into the movie we're reviewing, which is 2020's The New Mutants. And this is a movie that has really had a difficult time making its way to theaters. The release date has been changed, I think, seven times. And having now seen the movie, I realize that the theater, excuse me, the theater, the the studio probably knew what they had and were trying to find a way to dump it when there wouldn't be a lot of eyes on it. They ended up ultimately settling on the weekend when a few theaters nationwide were going to open up Mm. after the coronavirus quarantine was lessening in certain parts of the country to kind of get it out of their way. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting test case in that Josh Boone, the director of the film, was very vocal in his criticism of Rise of the Skywalker for putting a lesbian kiss in the background. He said that that was trite. It was uh, an attempt to mollify you know those who call for more diversity, but it was token. And clearly in The New Mutants, he has decided that he will not go for tokenism. There's a lesbian relationship at the heart of this movie. Yeah. And I noticed coming home from the theater and reading about the the film that Josh had to delete his Instagram account because one of the characters uh, in the comic books is uh, a Latino character. And he chose a very uh, pale, complected person to play that character. And so he has been accused of whitewashing and driven off social media by a mob. And I realized that he is yet another example of how you can never be woke enough that at some point you're always going to become the oppressor if you try to live under those rules. Yeah. And I mean, so New Mutants becomes kind of a pretty nice cultural specimen to talk about 2020. Oh, it's amazing. Like, you're 100% right. There's many – do these folks not realize that they're the whole woke emphasis is systemic racism? Which means your whiteness. If you are white, you are a racist. And if you think you understand that, it is an indication, according to D'Angelo and a few others, it's an indication of how deep set in racism you are because it's a racist act to think you're one of the good white people who understands. Right. All you can do is resign and give your position over to the oppressed. And if you're not willing to do that, you're just showing your racism. Or counting down the days till they turn on you, yeah. you know, till the mob turns on and you. And they're, they're going to turn on you. It's just a matter of time because, again, it is your whiteness that's the problem. Unless you can change your skin color, you can't change your racism. Well, but the- if you could change your skin color, that would be an act of appropriation. This yeah. is a moral universal acid. There is no hope for escaping condemnation. There's no hope for any kind of sanctification or justification. Right. It's a perpetual system of self-abasement, much more draconian than anything dreamed up by uh, religions that would tell you to self-abuse in order to do penance. Wow. Good point. So on the New Mutants. Mm-hmm. Jerry, we went back to a theater for the first time. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but we went back to our local theater. Uh, I just thought I would give listeners who maybe haven't had that chance yet or who are thinking about whether or not they will uh, a taste of what that experience was. So our theater requires masking and they wanted masks at any point that you weren't consuming concessions, which I thought was a little interesting feature. Uh, We were supposed to social distance. So certain rows were roped off. Uh, I think there were seven people or no, rather five people in our entire showing. Uh, You and I sat within conversational range of each other. Did you feel endangered or you know, in Converse, did you feel fairly safe going to the theater? 
Oh yeah, I did. But I'm, you know, I, I stayed away from, I didn't stay away from you, but I stayed away from everybody else and wore a mask on the way in. And I'm not worried. I mean, we're going to church and stuff. So I'm, you know, I'm wearing a mask at church when I'm around close to people. Um, but I'm, I don't know, man, I'm not going to live, you know, I'm kind of, I'm done with Corona, <laughs> you know, I'm ready to, I'm ready to move forward. So I'm ready. I've been ready to go to the movies for a couple of months. Yeah, we're we're in similar boats there. I've prayed with my kids. I still assume it was always the narrative that this is a highly contagious disease. I've prayed with my kids when we get the coronavirus that the Lord would be pleased to give us a uh, a safer version. You know that we would see that we would come through it feeling like we had a bad sickness rather than dying on a respirator. Mm-hmm. But I'm like you. Eventually, you just get to the point where the disease is a threat. But I cannot live this way. Mm-hmm. It. it not just society can't function, but humanity can. So at church, we just tell those who want to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. And if you can sit over here with other people who want to wear a mask. And we love you and affirm that. We will not criticize you for that. We're also not going to criticize the people who say, I'm going to take my risk. I'm going to take my chances. I won't wear a mask. And I'll sit with other people who feel similarly and are willing to accept yeah. that risk. And I kind of feel the same way about the theater. I don't know if I would run into a theater that was packed out as far as it could be in sure. terms of social distancing. Like if Infinity War released oh, now. Oh, yeah. I don't know when I'm going to see that. I really don't. I may go see it opening night. I may wait and try to catch it on an off day, you know. But I didn't feel in danger at the theater, and I plan to go back if the Lord allows the opportunity. Yeah, amen. Me too. Hopefully we'll go back soon. Well, let's jump into this story. So, listener, after I give this summary of the plot, uh, we'll be in full-blown spoiler territory. So if you don't want to hear spoilers for the New Mutants, you'll need to turn off after this point. Uh, The New Mutants is a movie about a young group of mutants who have recently discovered their powers being institutionalized under the care of a doctor who is supposed to help them learn to master their new powers, their mutations, and things go sideways. Things go sideways, for sure. And it's kind of supposed to be a twist in the plot, right? Yeah, I think so. We we assume they're they're going to... uh, you know, a Professor X is uh school for gifted students or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So let's get into this thing. Um, thinking about the story, I'm going to think of very angsty teenagers because the, the idea of a mutation that gives you superpowers is a pretty ready metaphor for puberty, you know, where there's this fundamental change within you that you, you didn't necessarily know when it was going to show up, but it, it starts making you a different person in a lot of different ways. So you've got these angsty teens who are supposed to be pubescent. They're in a very isolated environment in this like dank, decaying institutional campus that they can't escape because there's a force field around. And they're all sort of throwing their traumas at each other. You know, most of these kids, I think every one of them that we uh, meet have suffered because of their powers, sometimes in ways that they've harmed others. They've harmed others and they feel moral agency for having done so, killing a a parent, killing a girlfriend. Uh, The central character, Danielle Moonstar, her entire tribe died. Uh, another one named, um, oh, she's Colossus's little sister, played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Um, I've forgotten it, but it is a Russian name. I don't believe she has harmed people she cared about, but she was abused in a very specific way, the film implies. Uh, and so the, these are people who have suffered great trauma, and they're sort of in this locked-in environment, bouncing off of each other in unhealthy ways. What am I missing from that story? That sounds good, brother. Yeah, Danielle enters into the story uh, when the community's already formed. She immediately becomes friends with a very religious Irish girl named Rain, 
that pretty quickly turns into a lesbian relationship. And so when we think about conscience issues in this film, I think the positive portrayal of homosexual sexuality is one of the things that a conscientious Christian is going to want to know going in when they think about coming to watch this movie. What else would you tell people on conscience warning? There's some sexualized kissing between uh, two of the characters besides the lesbians, um, yeah. the boy and the girl. Um, yeah, the the heterosexual kissing is played for eroticism. Yeah, yeah. The lesbian kissing is played for sentimentality and nostalgia, basically. Young love, mm-hmm. puppy love, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then language and violence are the and there's some there's some genuine scary parts. You know, there's some you know these dreams um, are scary, and I mean they they actually come to life. And so um, you know this uh, what's what's the girl's name the the central character yeah Danielle Moonstar Danielle Moonstar Danielle um, knows the past of these folks and remembers um, their their most terrifying memories, and then dreams about them and they come to life. And uh, the men with the mask are, are terrifying. They're the demons. Um, and so there's some really scary parts. The the bear is scary you know, when you finally see him. And um, So that, other than that, though, I think those are the main scary things. I think there's something negative said about God at some point or if, if he's even in listening or if he something along those lines, which you kind of. I, I've become that's customary for <laughs> almost any movie now is to have one character that's like mad at God for something. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I don't think there's anything else I would add to that kind of profile as a conscience warning. Um, I would say that I think this is just a very bleak world. It's a very bleak world, a bleak film. And so the first question that we really ask outside of the nuts and bolts of the story, we ask what is good, true, and beautiful in this world. Where do we see common grace? And honestly, I think there's very little of that in the New Mutants. Mm-hmm. I was very optimistic about this. I've read a lot of New Mutants comic books in my time. The story that this, the comic book story that this film is based off of, the the Demon Bear Saga, I think is like from 84. And it's really well done. It's got some interesting art. It's an interesting story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew they were trying to do sort of a horror movie in the context of a superhero movie. I was really interested in that. Um, and so I had high hopes for this film and to have lived in its world for a while. Uh, I, I don't find much to say good things about. Uh, what would you say is good, true and beautiful in the world of the New Mutants? I think it, it shows the desire for I mean, all, all these children are taken away from their families in the name of so-called protecting them. At least you think that at the beginning. And then they they are kind of drawn together. They fight at first, but then. All of them form real relationships with one another. There's this desire for community, and and I think they get that right. That's something we can be glad about for friendship, you know, legit friendship and, you know, self-sacrificial love when folks are defending one another. um, We can rejoice when we see that, you know. Yeah, that's Um, good. I appreciate you saying that because you're right. Those things are present in the film. I think they're there. They are there in very muddied fashion. Yeah. But they're there. Yeah. They're there. They're <laughs> there. They are there. That's funny. That's funny. Um, well, then let's go to the other side of the equation. What is false and idolatrous? Yeah, I think the so-called lesbian love is a false and idolatrous that you can just follow your heart's desire um, and be happy. Like, that's what you ultimately need is whatever your heart desires, and that'll fulfill whatever need you have. But 
you're you're designed for God's glory, and part of that design is the complement uh complementary nature of men and women and concerning sexuality. It's meant to be uh men and women in marriage exercising that sexuality. And uh this move portrays the opposite of that. And it is uh, detrimental to anyone who tries to live that lifestyle. And yet this movie celebrates it as something good to be embraced and it's something it's something evil and something detrimental. Um and uh my kids I probably won't you know they may watch this when they get older but um, probably never let them watch it until their know, moral they, sensibilities are formed well. Yeah, because it's it's you know they always try to whitewash this stuff, and always it drove me nuts when you know when same sex marriage was passed. It was amazing. Obergefell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What made what made me so surprised during that time was how easy it was to get it passed because people were the slogans that I saw was like love who you want, and the fact is, I mean you you realize that that gay people literally had no less rights than straight people. All of us, both men and women, could only marry someone of the opposite sex. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can't marry, I couldn't marry just whoever I wanted. Like, I couldn't marry another man's wife. I couldn't marry uh, a sibling. I couldn't marry, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. it's just, but the slogans that people pushed, um, it was just, it was amazing how people adopt that. And this movie, Simplistic, unquestioning, yeah. yeah sure. well, this movie presents a very simplistic, like, you know, because these people are happy. See, lesbians can't have a happy monogamous relationship type thing. That and thus we need to celebrate love wherever it is. And and uh, you know, we I disagree with that. I think it's contrary to nature. It's um, unnatural, and we need to encourage folks to repent of that lifestyle and help them repent. And so we we need to love lesbians and gay men. And part of loving them means just telling them to to repent of those desires that are in their heart. And um, either to pursue, you know, a life of uh, a life of fighting those desires or pursue opposite sex friendships, which is what I would recommend. Pursue opposite sex friendships because literally you were designed um, your body at the very least was designed for marriage. Um, And it is possible that you're not called to marriage. Um, But what is the as far as the created order? You know, the created order is marriage, according to Genesis one through three. You know, or Genesis one and two, and so so anyway, I think that uh, this movie flies in the face of that, and um, we we as Christians don't need to celebrate that, and need to actually use it as an opportunity to say, look, this movie's lying about this. I'm with you, friend. I think that's maybe one of my real frustrations with this movie is that it takes things that are good and corrupts them. Mm-hmm. So we see, you know, harkening back to an earlier part of this episode. We see at one point Danielle kind of crushed by her circumstances, attempting to jump to her death from a clock tower. Rain comes and offers her literally the hand of friendship, pulls her back into safety. And what could have been a very good story about the way that friends help us find healing Mm -hmm. is absorbed into this narrative about human sexuality that's a lie. Mm -hmm. And I think you and I would agree that we've we've watched as this is a comparison, uh, women's sports have been destroyed by transgenderism, Mm -hmm. where a a biological male, who is a male, comes to compete in a women's sport and, lo and behold, can lift more weight, can punch harder, can run faster, can run longer, and sets allegedly, uh, you know, allegedly sets world records for females. Yeah. Yeah. And so the the distinction of the female athlete is just being destroyed Mm -hmm. in a way that some secularists are up in arms about. Yeah. Well, a similar phenomenon is taking place with uh, same-sex friendships, where we no longer culturally really have a category for two friends, two men who are friends, 
to women who are friends, we immediately push that into closeted homosexuality, subversive sexuality, repressed sexuality, or just they need to go ahead and have sex with each other. Hmm. Uh, it happened to the church with David and Joseph. It happens. David and Sorry, Jonathan. David and Jonathan. Thank you. Um, <laughs> David and Jonathan. It happens in this film between two young ladies who we would normally assume them to be friends. Statistically, it's almost virtually certain that their connection would be that of a friend. Mm-hmm. Here, however, that kind of relationship is not good enough. What, what did the comic book say? Was yeah, that's a good question. I can't remember if they were doing anything with that um, by that point. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a character in Marvel Comics named North Star who was on a team called Alpha Flight from Canada. And he uh, is the he's the first character I remember being openly homosexual. I don't remember it in the New Mutants. Hmm. But whatever happens here, you have whatever whatever the source material had happened here. This film, in the name of not being token, pushes these young women into an overt uh, lesbian relationship, uh-huh. and it doesn't do any service to the film. And it really is a loss for culture. It's a loss for culture to assume that any two friends are either closeted or openly homosexual. Mm. And it, it just aggravates me. Yeah. The the other thing they do is that the young girl who is the fountain of empathy that sort of rescues Danielle, her name is Rain. Well, Rain was abused by a priest. priest. Yeah. And Rain has maintained her Christian faith in some way, continues to be haunted by the specter of the priest. Uh, so what we have here is... The church is bad and ignorant because the church reacted poorly to her superpowers, an easy metaphor for the church reacting hatefully to her sexuality. Mm -hmm. So the church is evil, but lesbian love is good. And it's a complete moral inversion. Yeah. And it's just frustrating to watch it. And And honestly, with Boone being sort of destroyed for the whitewashing of the Sunspot character, I... I think it's a judgment that is appropriately playing out on this film. Hmm. You know, I think sometimes that the stuff you were talking about where, or I say you, we talked about briefly where we're just not watching the NBA, the NFL is not interesting. I think most Christians would agree prior to the start of 2020 that there probably was an idolatrous relationship with sports in the U.S. And counterintuitively, the social social justice movement has worked out in judgment on that idol uh-huh. and has lessened their affections for it. I really think a version of that may be playing out with the film where, okay, you you want a more aggressive posture towards pushing a wicked sexual ideology? Go ahead and make your movie. And then the Lord supernaturally sees to it that it's not satisfactory. Wow. That, that's a good commentary, man. It's uh, Those are all good points. You know, one of our buddies pointed out that it's almost like God designed 2020 to take out Disney. Like with all the amusement parks being closed and then Hollywood's closed. And then, you know, I mean, their all films tank. their films tank. I mean, they were on like, you know, they were producing films that were billion dollar billion successes. dollars, man. Yep. And uh, it, it, it's really I mean, that was a really good point. It's it's like, how do you it's it's weird what this what has what has been mostly affected or her governments and like like Disney and Hollywood and sports sports like the biggest. The things that you'd think would be untouchable as far as, um, I don't know, it's it's fascinating to look at. Yeah, the Lord's in control. Yeah, yes. You know, before we hit record on this, I saw on Twitter that Mulan is the subject of an intense online criticism right now. That It releases today. It releases today. You have to pay extra for it through Disney+. Plus, 
And already something problematic has been identified in Mulan in such a way that people are calling for it to be shut down. Goodness. I think the Lord knows how to use his enemies against his enemies. That's amazing. Like It's like eat your own, eat your own, eat your own. And, and this is just the way the Lord's judgment looks, yeah. right? One one tribe turns on the other, and both are his enemies, and they're used as instruments of judgment against each other. He's sovereign. Eventually, you're going to have folks like uh, J.K. Rowling, folks, more folks like her who are going to draw a line in the sand and say, and and she's still a progressive liberal. Like, sure. And, sure. You know, it's, it's, and what, what's funny is the things I've read her say, she's not against LGBT. She's saying, no, only women, you've got to keep women distinct. You can't just say a transgender person is a woman. That's yeah. all she's saying. She is such a bigot that she thinks a <laughs> uterus is required for a definition of femininity. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. And that, that's why they're crucified her for it. Yeah. It's just crazy. She's saying keep women sports, women sports, basically. Like Sure. And that. Steffi Groff caught similar backlash for saying that transgender athletes shouldn't compete against women in tennis. That's not, yeah. you know, and, and again, that is the position of science. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the poor religious people who are so anti-science are sitting on the sidelines saying, oh, the person whose body developed according to um, the presence of testosterone in his body so that musculature and uh, body mass and, and skeletal frame develops for a more muscular physique that uh, that you can just wave the wand and that's a woman, y'all go be pro-science. We'll be over here being anti-science, you know? Yeah. Uh, so the, I think there's an idol here. I think the Lord knows what to do with idols. And I think on this one, he's pretty clearly signaled his intentions. Uh, Jared, so to kind of put a bow on this thing, how is Jesus the answer to what this story is hoping for? Well, the, the gospel in this movie is basically, um, would you say, self-actualization, like I can control uh, the evil that's in my heart, and they'll just take care of it. Yeah, I mean, so listener, if if you have seen the movie, what we find out is that Danny is the demon bear that destroyed her people. Mm. She basically did not have control of her personhood, you know, since powers are part of who she is. At the end of the moment, she has a very self-help, excuse me, at the end of the movie, she has a very self-help discovery. She tells the bear, like, calm down. (laughs) It's ridiculous. <laughs> and so what you have is really the scene with the bear at the end and the lesbian relationship saying the same thing. Be at peace with who you are. And be at peace with who you are in the sense of just live according to whatever you want to do moment by moment, appetite by appetite. Mm-hmm. And the world's going to be okay. And again, I just think it's it's a product of the Lord's sovereign control that we see the foolishness of that idea that's supposed to be handed to us as something good by repeated scenes of Danny having to look at the dead bodies of her tribe scattered throughout the snow when who she is destroyed them. And so this idea that you look to your appetites, look to your desires to give you holistic good things, mm. they can't even tell a story about that. Yeah. They can't even tell a story where that makes sense. Yeah, amen. Yeah, so Christianity, Jesus is better because he is outside of us. The answer to our sin and what is wrong with us and what's wrong with the world is found outside of us in a person, God the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us. Not only that, but gives us a new nature, gives us the Holy Spirit, regenerates us. And now, in addition to desires of the flesh, we have desires of the Spirit that are produced from within us. And we also have the ability to submit to the Spirit, to walk in lockstep with the Spirit. 
And so the answer is found outside of us in Christ, not within us. And there, there's great freedom in that because the problem is inside of us. And to say that the solution is inside of us as well, you know, this, this movie, you know, acknowledges the fact almost in all of these, in all of these people that the problem is inside of them. But it also flips it around and says, oh, wait, you know, the solution is found inside of you, too. And I, I, and I think if you could summarize um, psychology today, that that would be it. You know, the problem's inside of you, the solution's inside of you. And um, the Bible says the opposite of that, you know, and we, we need to teach that. And I think there's, there's great freedom in that because if you, I mean, you look in the mirror and think the solution's inside of you when you know that you're a sinner and you know your weaknesses, but Christ is not weak. You know, Christ is not sinful. He's not, he, you know, what, uh, what John Newton said when he was about to die, you know, that Christ never did him no harm. And, um, He's never done me any harm either. He'll never do you harm if you trust in Him. And uh, I think that is great. You know, that is very freeing. It's it's ironic, isn't it, that the demon bear is inside this girl and she's murdered all her people and, and almost murdered all her friends. But everything gets better when she tells it to calm down. <laughs> yeah, let's hope that she doesn't ever lose control again, you know. Yeah. Or, I mean, if she ever has to come to grips with what Sam actually wrestles with, the character of Sam Guthrie, Cannonball wrestles with in the movie that it was his powers that killed his dad. Yeah. Danielle's in the same boat. Yep. And Sam's supposed to be defined by this and torn apart by it internally. She's supposed to just be happy that she figured out how to tell it to chill out. <laughs> what in the world? That's crazy. So I just riffing off what you said there, I'm, I'm with you in complete agreement about how the gospel applies. One, we know that people are created in the image of God and fallen. So there are instincts within us that retain that creational goodness. There are desires within us that do retain creational goodness. True. They're deeply fallen and wicked ones, right? Who is the reliable guide to which ones we should pursue? God. It is Christ who made us and stands outside of us and has the perspective needed and the wisdom needed to tell us this is the way of life. This is the way of death. Not exploring who you are in indulging your appetites. Christ is better in terms of what Danielle and these kids are looking for in knowing themselves than this nonsense about looking inward. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually reminded of the Lord's Supper on this front. You know, Paul tells the Corinthian church not to come to the Lord's table in unworthy fashion. And I take that as an encouragement to the church, an admonishment to the church to look inward and confess sin, to see if there's anything that uh, you failed to confess. And also because of the factionalism in Corinth, any broken relationship with church members, right? Mm-hmm. So in light of that, the way we take the Lord's Supper is we self-consciously say we're going to take a moment to reflect, look inward, hmm. confess what we find there. Yeah. But then I'm very conscious as a pastor when I then in that time of inward looking introspection to self-consciously lead the congregation to look outward to Christ. And I often pray a version of we have looked inside and seen what is wrong and broken and fallen and calls for our damnation. We are now looking outward to the one who is able and well-pleased to save us mm-hmm. and be the solution to what is not within us. And so we do self-consciously look outward. So to the teen who's trying to figure out at puberty, who am I? Who am I turning into? Mm-hmm. What I'm going to tell them to do is take those inward questions, look to Christ. Mm -hmm. The person who looks inward in their conscience and feels the moral guilt for what they've done, feels the appropriate shame, feels the looming threat of God's judgment. When you have looked inward and seen those things, 
now look outward to Christ because he's more than able to rectify your need, to meet your need, to not only remove your guilt, but to clothe you in his righteousness and adopt you as his father's child. Uh-huh. So, yeah, there, there's a there's a necessary component of being human that involves looking in and seeing things in there that are dark and broken. The solution's not in there with them. The solution is outside of them, sitting on a king priest throne, Amen. governing the cosmos. And if you look to him, you will find deliverance. Amen. Amen. My brother, the rain has kicked up, and so we will end the microphone list. We record more of it on the on the audio here. Before we go, you've got a book coming out? I do. It's coming out September 7th, Labor Day. So go to Amazon, go to your nearest uh, book uh, supplier, and buy, 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 buy. Give them away. Buy multiple copies. New Growth Press, right? New Growth Press. The title is The Pop Culture Parent. Pop Culture Parent, helping, helping kids engage their world for Christ. And so... Um, you know, uh, it really, we wanted to write the basically definitive one volume book on engaging pop culture. And I think that's, I think that's what we've done. Uh, you know, I'm partial because I was a contributor, but, um, it is a really good book. And I, and I think if you, uh, if you appreciate Jeff and I's approach to popular culture, this is kind of a how to book, um, for how to do what we do and how to train your children to grow up. And, uh, you know, you want your children to be able to do a podcast like this one day. Um, buy this book and teach them how to do it. Yeah, I mean, I am not biased. I would delight to make fun of you for making a bad book, writing a bad book. <laughs> That's not quite true, but I, I certainly uh, am invested in my friends succeeding. I will just say I think the book's incredible. I haven't read it all, but what I've read makes me think that it's an incredible book. And, you know, it's aimed at pop, you know, it's parenting, right? The pop mm-hmm. culture parent. I think there's use for this in pastoring. I think there's use for this in uh, what we would call like family ministry, caring for students, helping them think about the world. I think there's a future for this book in some levels of seminary training mm-hmm. uh, where people are thinking through how to care for uh, people pastorally. And so, friends, look, I'm not making a dollar off this book. I have nothing you know, tied up in it. I think you should go order it right now. And I think if you do so, you will find that I've given you good counsel. Um, Jared, where can people find you out on social media and whatnot? If they want to come make fun of you or belittle <laughs> you or chastise you for your stance on the uh, suicide. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Jared H. Moore. You can find me on Facebook at All Truth is God's Truth and another podcast called All Truth is God's Truth. I've also got another website, a new website called ProtestantReformation.net that I'm going to be writing a lot for in the upcoming year. And I want to encourage you to check that out as well. I'm at Right Jeff on most social media platforms if you want to find me. The show's at PCCD Pod on most social media platforms. We have one of the last few good reasons to be on Facebook. There it you is, go. It is a Facebook group called the Pop Culture Quorum Deo Perpetual After Party. It is a long name, and it's a great place to be. So we'd love to connect with you there. Jump in there and tell us what you think about our, our review of New Mutants. Uh, our take on the moral culpability issue with suicide, whatever you want to talk about. And there's great people in there to engage with you as well. We would sure appreciate if you took time to leave us a review on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. And also, if you would tell a friend to check out our episodes. So guys, for Jared Moore, I am Jeff Wright calling an end to this episode of the Pop Culture Quorumdale podcast. We're thankful you joined with us and we want to encourage you to live every moment as if you are before the face of God. Because you are. Talk to you next time.